Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 22 tonight, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we come to Isaiah chapter 22. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and if you get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands this evening, and it'll be marked to your text, and you can begin to follow right along. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Well, when we come to chapter 22 of Isaiah, we're coming to, toward the end of a, uh, a significant block or a significant section in the book of Isaiah, and that is from chapters 13 through uh, 23. This Here is a block of prophecies that God gives of a coming judgment, not only upon the southern kingdom of Judah, but also upon the northern kingdom of Israel, but also upon all of the nations that surrounded those two nations. And so these prophecies that were given of coming judgment at the hands of the Assyrians to Philistia, the Philistines, and to Moab, and uh, to Syria, and on and on the list goes. Uh, The Arabians, the nomadic tribes, as I think we saw last week. And it wasn't like these people were ever going to sit down and listen to Isaiah and say, oh, we're a nomadic tribe of Arabians in uh, the Saudi, uh, what is, you know, Dedan, what is known uh, today as Saudi Arabia, and uh, that they would ever listen to that prophecy of Isaiah, much less have any concern for what the God of of Isaiah had to say about anything, the Egyptians and the Ethiopians included at the time. And so God gives this prophecy not so much to the nations concerning the judgment that is coming their way for their sin, but uh, most supremely to communicate to his people that Assyria is going to be my instrument of judgment against wickedness and against uh, wrongdoing in this age. And when I begin to mete out my judgment, my righteous judgment upon you and upon the nations, I know that your first temptation is going to be to run to these nations for help when the solution to your problem will be to turn to me and to repent of your sin and get right with me and walk in obedience with me. That's the, that was the solution, the solution to the problems of every one of these nations. But so often we want to get the checkbook out, we want to make the phone call, we want to use this connection, and we want to get over here and see what kind of uh, help we can pull in. Everything but realizing there is no protection from me in this world except to know that I am right with God, walking obediently to Him, and with Him, and to make sure that that is the case. And that's the safest place anyone can find themselves in the world, right in the middle of God's will. Even if I die there in that place, it's still the safest place in the world. Obeying Him right in the center of His call for my life. Well, you say, you know, you've already said this a couple times in other sermons. Yes, it's a gift I have. It's called the gift of repetition. Such a gift, I'll tell you. Hmm? But here's why I mention it again. When we get into chapter 24, just in case I forget, by the time we get to chapter 24, and he begins to talk about God's judgment to come upon the entire earth, the idea is not 
that the whole world is going to give heed to the coming judgment of the great tribulation and turn at the news. The point is, is that in the last days, as the world becomes more and more difficult and God begins to chasten the world for its sin, that we will not do what the children of Israel did during this season in their life and that we will not look at the distress of nations with perplexity, the difficulty of the times and say, and then run to the world and its resources as a means of deliverance but that we will look and say the problems are so great God is behind all of this and we will run to God as the single place of refuge in our life, go deeper into the Lord and our relationship with him. In chapter 22, he uh, continues this series of woes or this series of prophetic uh, judgments that are going to come upon the nations by now uh, speaking about a judgment that is going to come upon Jerusalem itself. He says the burden against the valley of vision. And so he's declared these prophecies of judgment coming upon the surrounding nations. Now he turns to his own people because in Jerusalem they were living every bit as pagan a life as the nations that were around them. And so it was only right that Jerusalem itself would share in that judgment. He pronounces the burden of the valley of vision. That is a reference to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the very, was at that time the very home, the very center, the origin of prophecy. That was where most of the prophets came from. It was where Isaiah was prophesying from. So it was a way of describing the city of Jerusalem. God rebukes them and says, What ails you now that you've all gone up to the rooftops? You are full of noise, a tumultuous city. A jo- uh, you who are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. And so he rebukes them or he begins to rebuke them now. He will more thoroughly rebuke them by the time we get to verse 12. And he's rebuking them for the fact that they are living such careless lives as his people in Jerusalem in such a perilous time in human history. He'll describe it as people eating, drinking, be merry, for tomorrow we die. When the hour in human history that they were living in, the dangers were so great in the world that it was a time for sobriety. It was a time for seriousness about God and and uh, walking with Him and being used by Him in that time in in human history. And so he's he rebukes them for the fact that in 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 such a again a serious time in human history with so many problems that God's people are living this these careless frivolous kind of lives until finally the judgment then comes upon them. Your slain men are not slain with a sword, nor dead in battle. All your rulers have fled together. They are captured by the archers. All who are found in you are bound together. They have fled from afar. So Isaiah prophetically looks down past his season, which they were dealing with the Assyrians at that time, 
to the day in which the Babylonians would ultimately unseat uh, the uh, Medo-Persians who unseated the Assyrians. It would be the Babylonians that would come in and ultimately capture uh, the city of Jerusalem. And so the leaders fled the city. They were captured by the Babylonian enemy. And therefore I said, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the daughter of my people. You know, it's not easy to be a prophet. I don't know anything about being a prophet, but I've studied enough of the prophets. And here is Isaiah. God is revealing to him the future of his own people and the judgment that they were going to go through, the hardship that they were going to go through because of their refusal to repent and to turn from their sin. Imagine being in Isaiah's place and he's watching prophetically before his eyes and it's kind of a vision-like form perhaps and he sees the fall of destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians and he realizes how simple it would have been for that to never become a part of Jerusalem's history if they had only repented of their sin, taken it seriously, turned back to God, then this would have never happened. And to me, this is the curse that every Christian has in this life, any Christian who's filled with the Holy Spirit. And to me, it's the curse of opened eyes. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives. We see things with a clarity that nobody else but a child of God who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit sees things. We see trouble afar off. We see what's coming. We see the consequences of the decisions that are being made long before a person that doesn't know Christ sees them. And we are forced then to watch with this kind of a prophetic clarity, a Holy Spirit clarity, to watch this train wreck occur in slow motion and to realize it would be so easy for the problems of the world or of a nation or even of our loved ones who are involved in their own train wrecks for this to be avoided, for this to be changed and to be rectified, and yet they don't do it. And it breaks our heart. One of the blessings of being a child of God is the clarity with which we see things, again, because of the Holy Spirit and because of the Word of God. But it is also a curse to see it so clearly. And here is Isaiah. He's weeping bitterly over what he knows is coming, must come. And we have the same heart as we look at the world and the age in which God has called us to live for him and to realize that the rapture of the church could be but a moment away and the unfolding of the great tribulation and all the horror of all of that, all of it unnecessary. And yet to see a world as blind as ever it's been, as if the book had never been written, hurtling headlong toward that judgment, and then to realize that they're probably not going to turn to know, in fact, they will not turn, not as a whole. Individuals will. And the pain that it brings to our heart. And again, not just on a worldwide level or on a national level, but how many of us have been forced to watch, as I say, the train wreck of people that we love, our children, our grandchildren, our mothers, our fathers, our friends, our best friends, and to realize, look at what they've made of their life and how easy it would be to fix and yet we have no ability to fix it. That has to happen between them and God. It's not easy to be a prophet. Isaiah broke his heart. He took no joy in this any more than God takes joy 
in the judgment that he will bring upon the earth. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The Bible says that God isn't willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. He declares further in verse 5, For it is a day of trouble and treading down and perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, again speaking of Jerusalem. And he describes the uh, military invasion of Israel and of the city itself, the breaking down of the walls by the Babylonians and of crying to the mountain, Elam bore the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen and Kerr, un- and Kerr uncovered the shields. They're taking the, the, the they put this kind of a, a shield upon their shield like a, a leather or cloth and so they would take it off now to go into battle and so he already sees Jerusalem filled with chariots and filled with uh, all of these uh, military men, all of it so unnecessary. And he said, It shall come to pass that your choicest valleys shall be full of chariots, and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. And he removed the protection of Judah. That is a very preachable line, I'll tell you that. What was the protection of Judah? It's military, it's money, it's alliances. No, these were all the things that they thought were their protection. God was their protection. And if a person doesn't have God's protection, they don't have anything, not in this world. This world, to say nothing of the demonic realm, will overwhelm every resource we have. If we do not have God's protection, we have no protection. And they did not have God's protection. Not because he didn't want to give it, but because they didn't want it. And so instead of looking to their own to God for protection, you looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest, which was where they kept their weapons. And you also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great. And instead of repenting and turning to God, which is what all of this was intended to do, instead they gathered together the waters of the lower pool. They numbered the houses of Jerusalem. They began to stockpile water for a long siege within the battle. They began to break down the houses within the city of Jerusalem so they could take the stone and rebuild the wall. They began to try to fix the problem on their own. Instead of doing the one thing that the judgment was intended to do, the chastening was intended to do, and that was to turn them back to God, to obey God and live for Him once again. That might speak to one or two of us here tonight. Where God's chastening comes into our life and we begin to think that the solution to it is to pool this money over here and then to break down these walls and shift this over here and then call my rich uncle and all of these different kind of things and to realize there's no solution to God's chastening but to get right with God. And that was all that needed to do. But here we've got this whole, the verses just speak of this flurry of human activity and in trying to deal with the problem of God's chastening. You number the houses of Jerusalem and the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. You also made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long. Ago, They did everything but repent and turn back to God. And in that day, the Lord God of hosts 
called for weeping and mourning, for baldness, shaving your head in mourning as they did in those days, for the girding of themselves with rough sackcloth, again a sign of mourning. He said this was a day for this kind of weeping and mourning. Look at our sin. Look at the world. Look at the danger that we're in. Look at the danger that we've put our lives in. Look at the mess we've made of our own lives, the mess we've made of our country, the mess we've made of the world. And then to say, God, would you take us back? Would you have us at all if we turn to you? That would have been the proper attitude of a sane people in the middle of what they were in the middle of. But instead of doing all of that, it was joy and gladness and parties and moving to the next celebration and the next wedding, the slaying of the oxen, the killing of sheep, eating meat, going out to eat and and, uh, drinking wine. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And so again, here we have it in its fullness as they... The hour called for sobriety. It called for seriousness among, if no other people, among God's people. And yet they just gave themselves to frivolity and partying and playing around and whatever kind of entertainments were in the course of, of uh, were in uh, fashion in, in those days. I don't think as Christians we should ever lose our joy. In the light of the world's condition, in fact, I know we shouldn't. But when the world is in the condition that is in, it is in all around us today, it is a dangerous place, it is a volatile place, and it is in the condition that it's in because of rebellion against God and disobedience to his word on so many levels all around the world. Man is smarter than God and in their own minds. And then an hour like that, then somebody has to be the adult. <laughs> you ever hear about that? Sometimes the saying is that somebody has to be the adult in the situation where all of the adults are, believing, are behaving like children. And in a circumstances like this, it was a time for God's people to say, if no one else is going to honor God in this way, if nobody else is going to obey him, respect him in this way, in a season like this, then we will do it in the world. And that's the very thing that we have to do today. We can't speak for other people. We can't speak for our own nation, much less other nations. We can't speak for our neighbor All we can do is speak for ourselves, but individually as Christians. This is a time in history to be sober and to be, as Jesus declared in his Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, he gave those two great parables that spoke of, multiple parables, parables speaking of the fact that when the world is in the condition that it's going to be in in the last days. And by the way, his description describes the world that we're living in like never before in human history. He said there's three things that need to be occurring in essence in those parables. We need to be watching and waiting for Jesus' return. And then we need to be serving him. We need to be working, watching, waiting, and working, busy about his business as we await 
the rapture of the church. And that's what we're called to do. Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter uh, 37 in this very vein. He warned that this same thing would be true of, of the world all around us immediately before the rapture. And he said, but as in the days of, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that the Noah entered into the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. And so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. So it's a time for joy. It's a time for uh, celebration in our relationship with God and in our relationship with one another and in, within the kingdom of God. But it's also a time for sober-mindedness when the world is in the condition that it's in. They lacked it. God noticed it, and he rebuked them for it. And then it was revealed, verse 14, in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, surely for this iniquity there will be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord of hosts. Now, the only thing that's worse than the people of a nation uh, living in rebellion against God, living selfish lives in a time of calamity and danger as the children of uh, Judah were in at that time. The only worse thing than the people living that kind of life is when the leaders uh, live that kind of life. And uh, so he begins this rebuke of a steward by the name of Shebna, who was a, a, uh, had a position of a steward over King Hezekiah's house at that time. King Hezekiah was one of the good kings uh, of Judah, and Shebna's position would have been one in which he had uh, virtually full control of who came into the palace, uh, who didn't come into the palace, who came before the king, who didn't get access to the king, it was maybe the most second most powerful position in all of uh, Jerusalem and Judah next to the king himself. And the Lord declares, Go proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house, the house of Hezekiah, and say, What have you here? And whom have you here? that you've hewn a sepulcher here, as he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. And so here you have this uh, uh, servant of Hezekiah. He's in this position, high, high position within the reign. And rather than looking at taking his position and saying, I'm going to use it as an influence for God among God's people. He, ta he takes his time, he takes his position, he takes his influence, and he directs it completely toward uh, selfishness in building some kind of a sepulcher that's uh, going to be built for his burial. And he built it in a very, very prominent place. Archaeologists believe today that they've discovered the uh, this sepulcher that Shebna built for himself. And for those of you who have been to Israel, it's right across the Kidron Valley from the old city of David. So he pulled out the prime real estate. He is uh, hewing out out of solid rock a place for his body to be buried and then ornamentation all around in the stone. And it's kind of like building a statue of yourself before you die. 
The whole idea is, is that when I die, I don't want people to forget about me. I want them to always remember what a great man I was. And what Shebna didn't understand, what so many people don't understand is, the way that you have people remember you for how great a man you were is not by making a statue or a monument to yourself, but by living a life for God, a life where I love God with all of my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength, and I love my neighbor as myself. That's a life that someone will remember. And, 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 that name will be prized, it will be highly esteemed, more than uh, some kind of a sepulcher that's uh, built up, and then the whole land falls to the Babylonians, and everybody says, how in the world did the, who were the leaders that led us into this mess, and then your name is uh, mud. Now, the best way to, the greatest tombstone that you can, and I remember as a kid, I used to drive, ride my bike through um, the Tulake Cemetery in uh, Napa, California. Listen, a little morose, I know, but uh, a melancholy kid. But we would ride our bikes anywhere we could. They had some pretty good hills in there. And we'd look at these gigantic monuments and these tombstones, and some of them, I mean, 13, 15 feet high, <laughs> just incredible with the famous names of founders within the city and all of that. But, you know, within one generation, nobody knows who those people are. And, and much better, if you're going to invest in one generation, the generation that we know and knows what that tombstone could mean, much better to invest our life in the things of the Lord and blessing people and serving them, the two commandments as Jesus uh, taught us, and then that's a life that's well spent. He used his position to just enrich himself and to promote himself, and he's going to lose everything as a result of that. Sometimes, um, forget it. Uh, I want to go there, but I won't. So, so he's, he, he's rebuked related to this in verse 17. Indeed, the Lord will throw uh, you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you, and he will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large uh, country. So I think God can, uh, he's got a pretty good fastball. So he could probably toss you pretty far. He probably, Shebna was a foreigner, he was not a Jew, and uh, so probably uh, taken uh, somewhere along the way uh, into, uh, perhaps into Assyria, but he lost his position, taken into a large country. There you will die, and there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. And so... He had these beautiful cars, and he'd drive around in his chariots and wouldn't go anywhere without this big entourage and presence. And the Lord says, you're going to lose everything. And uh, so I will drive you out of your office and your position. Uh, uh, he will uh, uh, pull, and from your position, he will pull you down. And so he builds this great monument to himself, this great sepulcher, and he doesn't even end up being buried in it. And then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, 
the son of Hilkiah, to replace Shebna in his position. And I will clothe him with your robe, and I will strengthen him with your belt. The robe and belt would have been unique. They would have been like like a military uniform today in the sense that it would have communicated the highness of the position that Shebna once had and now Eliakim had as kind of the person who was in charge of, uh, of the king's house. And I will commit your responsibility into his hand, but notice he's going to handle that responsibility and that privilege in a different way. He won't use the position to enrich himself, but he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And Eliakim's name is gold in Jewish history, in the history of the Bible. Uh, And Shebna's is not because he was a father. He looked at these as a people. They need to be taken care of. They need to be led. Uh, they need to be uh, uh, blessed and to be directed. And that's, that's the heart that he brought uh, to that position. And to the house of Judah, the key of the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder, and he shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. Here is uh, Eliakim. He has the keys to who gets into where within the palace and he with a father's heart toward Hezekiah also toward uh, the nation there were certain things that ought to have come into the palace before the ears of the king things that should have never been allowed in the palace and accordingly he opened doors and gave access and just as importantly he closed doors to other people very very wise And God said, I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place. So peg is just kind of, now we just go down to whatever store we want and we buy a hook and we screw it into the wall. So peg was like an old form of a hook. You would just drill a little hole in the wall and then you would pound this wooden peg in to the wall and it would be something that you would uh, hang things on. And so God describes uh, Eliakim as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne uh, to his father's house. And they will, speaking of his father's house, hang on him all the glory of his father's house. When he arises to this position, his whole family will be so proud uh, of him, the offspring and the posterity, all the vessels of small quantity, all the cups to all the pitchers. In other words, his family, both significant and insignificant, old and young, they would then hang upon him the pres- uh, upon him uh, because of the prestige that he had, because of the position, because he handled it well. He'd be the pride of his family. And And in that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and cut down and fall, and the burden that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. And so his family would um, uh, be proud of him, but they were to be careful not to build their dependence upon him as opposed to the Lord, because even as great a man, as godly a man as Eliakim was, Uh, At this point in the history of Judah, no single one king or one man, no matter how godly, was going to turn the people away from their headlong rush uh, toward judgment. And so ultimately he would uh, die and and, uh, lose that position. In chapter 23, we have a prophecy against Tyre. Tyre was with Sidon, uh, the, one of the two great cities 
of a group of people that we know from ancient times as being the Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians were uh, located and based in what we would call today Lebanon, just immediately north of Israel. And the kind of uh, empire, so to speak, or the reach of the Phoenicians wasn't just in Lebanon, but they had colonies. They established colonies all along North Africa, uh, also in Sicily, Sardinia, uh, Cyprus, all the way to Tarshish, which is an ancient name for uh, Spain, the southern part of Spain and beyond. And so uh, Tyre because it was one of the two kind of great cities of the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians were known for their navy. They were known for trade. They were known for shipping. They were famous in the ancient world for that. And the Phoenicians dominated the trade of the Mediterranean uh, Sea area. Most of the wealth and the goods of the world uh, passed their way through the city of Tyre at one point or another and were shipped ultimately on Phoenician ships from uh, one end of the Mediterranean to the other. And here God uh, declares his judgment that's going to come uh, upon the city of Tyre itself. He said, Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for it is, that is, Tyre is laid waste, so that there is no house, no harbor. From the land of Cyprus it's revealed to them. So here you have a group of Phoenicians, and they have gone to Tarshish, let's say southern Spain, a part of the colonies of the Phoenicians, and they've gone and they've brought great wealth there, and they're returning to Tyre with their ships full of more wealth to bring back to Tyre. As they're making their way back, they stop in the island of Cyprus, and then they receive the news of the fact that Tyre has fallen, that it's been judged, and that it has been uh, taken, and it's been destroyed. And the uh, Isaiah then declares to them, Be still, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon, uh, whom those who cross the sea have filled, and on great waters the grain of Shihor, the harvest of the river is her revenue, and she is the marketplace for the nations. And so the word comes now to Sidon, the second great uh, city of the Phoenicians, that Tyre has fallen to the Assyrians, and uh, to be associated in any way with Tyre, with the Phoenician trade was to make a nation or to make a city or a port fabulously wealthy and to uh, make people rich in uh, unbelievable ways in the ancient world if they were marketers and, uh, and, and, uh, and tradesmen. And God declares through uh, uh, Isaiah to them, be ashamed O Sidon, for the sea has spoken, so the news of Tyre's fall leaves them ashamed, it leaves them stunned. The sea has spoken, the strength of the sea, saying, I do not labor nor bring forth children, nor do I rear young men nor bring up virgins. In other words, the Phoenician sailors would become so few upon the Mediterranean Sea that the Mediterranean Sea says, I don't know anything about them. Uh, I don't, uh, I, she'll deny that she had uh, any children, such children among the Phoenicians. When the report reaches Egypt, reaches Cairo, and, and much of the trade that went 
that was based on the Phoenicians also went into Cairo. Egypt was enriched by all of this. They hear of the judgment of Tyre and the report reaches them and they will also be in agony at the report of Tyre. What God is essentially saying here, the equivalent of it today would be for some prophet uh, to get up, a true prophet, and declare and have it happen that there would be a complete collapse of the New York Stock Exchange that it would fall from wherever it is, 16,700 or whatever. I hardly follow it. Uh, Wherever it is in that place, and not fall 10% or 20%, but collapse all the way down. There would be the loss of billions of dollars overnight. People would lose vast amounts of wealth in an instant. This This is the kind of news that's hitting, not the poor, but it's hitting the rich, but it hits the rich and then it hits the poor because, you know, all of the support people that are involved in all of these ports and all. So Sidon mourns over the news. Egypt and Cairo mourns over the news. And then Isaiah gives uh, some kind of uh, instruction and advice to the peoples of Phoenicia and urges them to flee uh, from Tyre, from that area, to go to the more remote colonies of Phoenicia, cross over to Tarshish, go off to Spain. It's a safer place right now. Wail, you inhabitants of the coastland. Is this your glorious city whose antiquity is from ancient days, whose feet carried her off uh, to dwell, who has taken this counsel against, who has taken this counsel against Tyre? The crowning city, whose merchants are princes, whose traders are the honorable of the earth. In other words, she made everyone rich who was associated with her. The Lord of hosts has purposed it to this judgment to bring this, to bring to dishonor the pride of all glory, to bring into contempt the honorable of the earth. And so God brings judgment upon the city of Tyre. Because the city of Tyre and the rich men who were associated with her trade got lifted up in pride. What kind of pride? The pride that the rich person, whether a man or a woman, has to be especially careful of. And that is the idea to think that I am better intrinsically than anyone else in the world because I am rich. And God knows that is not true. A person may be more sophisticated in terms of money. They may may be more sophisticated in a livelihood that is rewarded at a particular point in time in history that it makes them rich. They just have an aptitude in that area which would have never enriched another person 400 years ago. It would have been something else. And so sometimes it's just the way that things are. And it's a great self-deception to think that I am better than anyone else in the world because I am rich and they are not rich. Because the next step that a person takes when I believe that I'm better than other people, then I will mistreat other people. And not only will I mistreat other people, but I won't stop until I use them and I abuse them. And here in this particular passage, Tyre is an Old Testament picture, this destruction of this commercial empire. It's a picture 
of a destruction of what is called commercial Babylon. And that's all described in Revelation chapter 18, where it talks about this great commercial system and all of the things that they trade and the money that's being made off of it and and all of the spices and all of the gold and all of the wealth and all of it moving. And then there comes a point in all of it, and let me just turn to it and describe the, the the condemning uh, line related to it. And it, it says, And the merchants of the earth at the destruction of commercial Babylon will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of the most precious wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, incense, fragrant oil, and fragrant frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots. And then here it is in the final words of verse 13, and bodies and souls of men. It is, uh, there is always a judgment of God upon a commercial system that reaches a point where to the people who are making the money off of that commercial system, People become no more important than the product that they make. People become, more, more, become as dispensable as the product that they make. The product that they make becomes more important than the people. People are just there to be used and to squeezed out and to be thrown in a heap and the next generation come in, do the same thing to them. All that matters in terms of our contact with people is that in some way it seems as if God has provided this endless flow of people for me to use to enrich myself. And when a person or a world gets into that place, it's ripe for judgment. And I'll tell you, in my opinion, in some parts of the world, we're getting very close to that in terms of how people are treated and how they're used. In vast segments of the world, people are just a thing, a nothing, to be traded and to be used and to live and to die in obscurity. And who cares as long as the big machine continues to run and God takes note of it. And it's a powerful, powerful force. And he judged it related to Tyre, commercial Babylon, very, very strong. Nothing wrong with hard work, rewarding hard work. Nothing wrong with free enterprise. I'm not bad-mouthing all of that, any of that. But there is a line that gets crossed where it is no longer about loving God, again, with all my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength, and loving my neighbor as myself, as governing my practices, even in how I make money. And now it's all about me and who cares about God and who cares about my fellow man. It's interesting, isn't it? I couldn't help but observe this uh, kind of Christmas season. So we look at, look at Christmas Day in our culture, completely, completely overwhelmed by commercial Babylon. Complete, it has been. Commercial Babylon is the blob that ate St. Louis. It is the blob that has eaten Christmas. We say, well, at least they haven't touched Thanksgiving. And then this year, what did they do? They couldn't wait for Black Friday, could they? They could not wait one day. But the stores had to open on Thanksgiving Day 
and even rob that great day in a day to get people to think about something that is meaningful and yet commercial Babylon in Take, is taken and encroached in there. It will not be satisfied until it has taken everyone's eyes off of uh, God and uh, made them to worship uh, commercial Babylon itself. And so this is the judgment that comes upon them. Overflow your land like a river, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no more strength. He stretched out his hand over the sea. He shook the kingdoms. The Lord has given a commandment against Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, you will rejoice no more, O you oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus, and there also you will have no rest. In other words, flee into these other places. Uh, God's uh, judgment upon uh, Tyre and, and, uh, and her grip upon Tarshish, that grip upon Tarshish is going to be broken. Tarshish would gain some level of, of freedom for a time, and the Lord speaks to them about that. Behold the land of the Chaldeans, this people which was not Assyria founded it for wild beasts of the desert. They set up its towers. They raised up its palaces and brought it to ruin. And wail, you ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste. The Assyrians would conquer the city of Tyre, but it would be later under the Babylonians that they would come in and beat out the destruction that is being described uh, here. They would destroy the city of Tyre, but because the Tyre, because Tyre was a seafaring people, they simply moved all of their wealth and they moved their city from the mainland to an island that was a half mile offshore. And there was nothing that even the Babylonians could do to conquer uh, that island Tyre. Alexander the Great would do it later. We'll pick the story up uh, during the millennium in the book of Ezekiel. And uh, it doesn't happen during the millennium. I'm just saying that's when we'll get there. So this... This whole story of how it's going to happen, the Chaldeans will be the one, the Babylonians will be the one who will do it. And now it shall come to pass in that day that Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years according to the days of one king. At the end of 70 day, years, it will happen as to Tyre as in the song of the harlot. Take a harp, go, out, uh, go about the city, you forgotten harlot. Make sweet melody, sing many songs that you may be remembered. And so after 70 years, the Assyrian Empire began to fade. It began to lose its grip upon its empire, uh, the vast um, reaches of its empire. And when it began to uh, lose its strength and its grip, Tyre established its own independence once again, returned to its old harlotries, and uh, she is likened to a harlot here because everything that she did was done for money. And so very appropriate imagery. And it shall be at the end of 70 years that the Lord will deal with Tyre. She shall return to her hire and commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. But that's not the end of the story concerning Tyre. Happily, God likes happy endings. Her gain and her pay will be set apart for the Lord one day, and it will not be treasured up nor laid up 
for her gain will be for those who dwell before the Lord to eat sufficiently and for fine clothing. So in the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ, Tyre will still be involved in trade and it will still be a prosperous place, but it will not be uh, commercial Babylon. It will not be prostitution. It will not be selfishness. It will be energetic. It will be uh, innovative. It will be hardworking. But in order that the profits that come from that will then be channeled to God, his work, his people, his servants during the thousand-year reign of Christ. And of course, we don't have to wait as Christians uh, for the millennial millennium in order to do that. We're able to give toward God's work and toward his kingdom and the expansion of his kingdom uh, in this very hour. But Tyre, well, the light will go on for them uh, following the great tribulation, and that will be kind of their um, uh, epilogue related to their history during the thousand-year reign of Christ. Chapter 24, in chapter 24, we come uh, to a, a breaking out of that 13 to 23 section of, uh, of Isaiah, dealing with the judgment upon all of these individual nations. And now Isaiah gives a description of a judgment that is to come upon the whole earth. You notice, behold, the Lord makes the earth. And the word that's used in the Hebrew for earth there is used 16 times in this chapter. Sometimes it's translated earth. Sometimes it's translated nation. Sometimes it's translated land. But it's referring to a judgment that is going to come uh, upon the entire earth. And it is a period, what we know biblically is the great tribulation period when God's judgment is going to be uh, meted out upon the entire world. Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and he makes it waste, distorts its surface and scatters abroad its inhabitants. And so the judgment that will be meted out during the great tribulation period and this future event uh, following the rapture of the church, it will be universal. It will cover the entire world. Uh, earth. And then second in verse 2, it'll be inescapable. It shall be as with the people, so with the priest, and as with the servant, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The land shall be entirely emptied and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. And so the judgment will come upon all classes of people. There will be no amount of position, no amount of money, uh, no amount of anything that will... Uh, uh, allow a person to escape uh, God's judgment during the tribulation uh, period. And so his judgment will be righteous. It will be without any respect of persons. And, of course, all of this is uh, very consistent with John's description of uh, the great tribulation in the book of Revelation. Let me read something to you from verse 6 and see if it doesn't sound very similar to what we've just read. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. And so talking about this same event. And then in verse 
4, Isaiah gives us the cause of this coming future worldwide uh, judgment. The earth mourns and it uh, fades away. The earth languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth languish. It's because of people's pride. And the earth is also defiled under its inhabitants. And so this judgment will come against man's pride, against the defilement of uh, of the earth morally and uh, spiritually. And here's the reason for the pride and for the moral defilement of the earth by men living in rebellion against God. It's because they have transgressed the laws and the world will end up in the condition that it's in because of a disregard, open uh, breaking of God's law. So often when you see the word transgression in the Old Testament, it's not talking about sin that's inadvertent. We meant to do better, but we didn't do quite as good as we thought we wanted to do in the situation. Transgression is to know what right and wrong is and to do wrong anyway. And I don't care what God says. And so here is... The deliberate transgression of God's laws, the changing of the ordinance. This is the kind of thing that goes on all over the world today, even within professing Christianity, where people take the commandments of God, they take the ordinance of God, the clear commandments of God's word, and they say, I don't think I quite like the Christianity that God has fashioned in his word that's been purchased for us by the blood of Christ. I can make that better. And so, yes, I believe this, that Jesus said, but I don't believe that this about what he said. And I believe this about what Paul wrote, but I don't believe that about what Paul wrote. And we fashion our own Christianity in defiance of the Christianity that's described in the Bible and the Christianity that Jesus died on the cross and was buried and rose again in order to provide to us. This changing of the ordinances going on not only in the secular world, but the religious world and the professing Christian world. Uh, all over the place. And then there is the breaking of the everlasting covenant. This judgment will come upon the earth because God's word and his commandments will be completely disregarded. And therefore, the curse has devoured the earth and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left. Comparatively, very few people will survive the great tribulation. And uh, you read about the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments in the book of Revelation. I mean, some of these uh, seals and bowl judgments and trumpet judgments, just a single one of them destroy one-third of the population of the earth in an instant. The last time I taught the book of Revelation, the numbers as I would work them out, I was dealing with five billion people, the population of the earth at the time. Now it's seven billion plus I don't know how many will go out in the rapture in terms of adjusting the number, but relatively few people will be left at the end of that judgment. And I think most of them will be people who have been uh, divinely protected by, uh, by God, a Jewish remnant, Gentiles who become Christians and saved during the Great Tribulation period uh, they'll ha- and, and uh, spend their lives running for their lives Uh, from the Antichrist and his whole uh, machine of death. The new wine fails. The first casualty of 
sin as we spoke about this morning, as joy as Isaiah brings it forth, the new wine, there'll be no joy in the earth. The new wine fails, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh, the mirth of the tambourine ceases, the noise of the jubilant ends, the noise of the harp ceases. They shall not drink wine with a song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up so that no, none may go in. There's a cry for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. And he's describing a typical city, life in the typical city during the great tribulation period. What a depressing mess uh, it will be. Here is man given his opportunity. We're rid of God. We're rid of Christians. Now we get to make the out of the earth exactly what we want to make out of the earth. And it is made into a mess because God is forced to judge the wickedness of man. And when it shall, it, uh, when it shall be thus in the midst of the land among the people, it shall be like the shaking of an olive tree, like the gleaning of grapes when the vintage is done. Again, a judgment upon the whole earth, very few people surviving it. And then there is this godly remnant described in verses 14 through 16 who will cry out on the earth during the great tribulation period. They shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall sing aloud from the sea. Therefore glorify the Lord in the dawning light, the name of the Lord God of Israel in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we have heard songs, glory to the righteous. So there will be a godly remnant who will be alive during the great tribulation period. And there, there will be, um, again, when the rapture of the church occurs, uh, Christians are removed from the earth at that particular point in time. Think about how many people, friends, family members that you've witnessed to about coming to know the Lord and then suddenly every Christian they know in all of life is gone. And what did that guy say about the rapture and what I should do and where is his Bible if he's gone one day and all? And the light will go on for people and to realize, wow, what they were saying was true. I need to put my faith in Christ. And to get saved after the rapture of the church is most, for most people is going to mean martyrdom for their faith. There will be a Jewish remnant that once the, the Antichrist goes into the Holy of Holies of the temple that he will allow the Jews to rebuild at the midpoint of the great tribulation period and he sits down in the Holy of Holies, declares himself to be God, demands to be worshipped as God. The light will go on for the Jews. We've been deceived. This is not the Messiah. And they will run toward the city of Petra and, and try and find refuge among the Edomites. We've read earlier in Isaiah where God said to embrace them. He supernaturally protects them. We know from the book of Revelation where the Antichrist sends a great army against the Jews to destroy them. He has a special hatred for the Jews because the Jews have provided the world with a Messiah through their bloodline. And God then opens up, we're told, in the figurative language of 
the revelation, opens up the earth and swallows up the army. Somehow, supernaturally, he destroys them. It could be an exact description of how he does so. But then they find refuge in this uh, place. During the thousand-year reign of Christ, there'll be 144,000 male virgin Jews sharing the gospel. There'll be two great angels that are going to be preaching to the whole earth the everlasting gospel. People will hear the gospel. They will know how to be saved and to be forgiven and to one day end up in heaven. And they will respond to that gospel. And as that judgment is being poured out, Upon the earth, even though they find themselves in the middle of it, they have such a sense of of love for God and such a concern for righteousness and holiness and that God's will would prevail, that even as they're bearing, in some respects, the consequences of God's judgment upon the earth, they praise him for the fact that he is judging the earth and judging the wickedness, uh, the wicked. And all of this is very consistent with a praise that is lifted up to God. We read about it again in the book of Revelation as his judgment is being poured out upon the earth. There is a chorus in which heaven sings to the Lord, righteous and true are your judgments. And so, Lord, what you, ha- you have to do what you have to do in order for righteousness to prevail and to destroy this degree of wickedness. And so the righteous will rejoice in that, even those that are on the earth and witnessing it. For them, the whole thing is, God, you win at whatever the cost, and we will praise you for it. But I said, Isaiah, as he's witnessing all of this again prophetically, he said, I am ruined, ruined, woe to me. The treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Indeed, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. And so here is Isaiah, brokenhearted again, that the world would not turn from their treachery and their sin and turn to God, that all of this judgment against the earth doesn't produce uh, repentance and brokenness in people, but that God must continue from the seals to the trumpets to the bowls and still no repentance from the population of the earth in general. And it broke his heart. Fear and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth, and it shall be that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall in the pit, and he who comes up from the midst of the pit shall be caught in the snare. Again, there's no hiding in that season from God's judgment. It is inescapable. If the seals don't get you, the trumpets will get you. If the trumpet judgments don't get you, the bold judgments will get you. There is no hiding place from the judgment of God at that time. For the windows from on high are open, and the foundations of the earth are shaken, and the earth is violently broken, the earth is split open, the earth is shaken exceedingly, the earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, and shall totter like a hut. And so speaking of the earthquakes that will mark Uh, the earth at that time. Imagine looking at the world and it looks like a drunk man trying to make his way down the street. Now that's quite an earthquake. I don't know what that'll be on the Richter scale. It doesn't take much of an earthquake to disorient an entire city or an entire state. And here is the whole world shaking all at once. 
and uh, God uh, bringing in the judgment in the form of earthquakes and its trans- transgressions will, shall be heavy upon it and it will fall and not rise again. Again, the reason for the judgment is the transgression that they will not turn away from. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones. And so God promises that he will bring a judgment at that time uh, following the great tribulation upon both the demonic leaders and the human leaders that led people in rebellion against God during the great tribulation uh, period. Among the demonic leaders, he talks about, uh, again, verse 21, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones. And so the Antichrist, Satan, the false prophet, each of them will be uh, taken captive and thrown for a time uh, into uh, Hades and uh, waiting the final judgment of of them at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. And then the judgment that will move on to the earth, uh, the kings of the earth, and all of these kings who we read in the book of Revelation who took and gave their thrones, gave over the sovereignty of their country to the Antichrist in order for him to rule over them. And all of the leaders that became uh, willing enablers of the Antichrist to uh, be the cruel leader, leader that he will be during the tribulation period, God will judge the demonic leaders. He will judge the human leaders. And they will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit. And will be shut up in the prison after many days, a thousand years to be exact. They will be punished. The white throne judgment occurs after the thousand year reign of Christ. And then they will be thrown as, and death will be thrown as well into the eternal lake of fire. And everything will then give way to a new heaven and a new earth. All of this fallenness of this creation will melt with a fervent heat. And a new heaven and a new earth will take its place. This is spoken of in verse 23. And then the moon will be uh, disgraced, the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign the, uh, on Mount Zion in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. So in that day, uh, that uh, at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, there's going to be this creation of the new heaven and the new earth. We're told in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, that the new Jerusalem is not going to need any light of the sun or of the moon because God himself, Jesus, will provide the light, the radiance from him will provide the light for the city. That's what it's talking about when it talks about the moon being disgraced and the sun ashamed. It'd be like, what are we going to do in the light of the beauty of what radiates off uh, of uh, of him and so this uh, establishing of Jesus's final and ultimate reign the ultimate victory the new heaven and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells Peter says and that will never ever be interrupted by sin or anything forever and ever and ever and here we see in verse 23 and it's so appropriate uh, to end in this way this evening And that is the purpose of God's judgment is never simply to judge. Again, God says in his word, I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. He takes no joy in the death of the wicked. He really doesn't. 
When he judges, he is forced to judge. But he will judge everything and every person who stands between him and the establishment of that eternal reign of Christ. And so he will judge in order to bring forth the beautiful thing that he desires, the majestic thing that he desires, and best not to find ourselves in any way resisting him in accomplishing that because he will prevail. If you sit here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. There are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after this service. The only escape from the wrath that our sin deserves individually and the wrath of God that is going to one day come upon the earth is our faith in Christ because the Bible says that God has not appointed us as Christians to wrath because Jesus bore the wrath that our sin deserved upon the cross. And so I beg you, this is chapter 24 is known as Isaiah's apocalypse, the little apocalypse of, of Isaiah. It's such an incredible Old Testament description of what we know and have greater revelation of in the New Testament. And just as every prophecy came to pass concerning those nations that are described in verses 13 through 23, and every one of those prophecies came to pass, this prophecy will come to pass as well. And the importance of being on the right side of God. And there is only one step necessary in order to be on the right side of God. And that is to do the single greatest thing that we can do to bless and to honor the heart of God. And that is to put our faith in his son that he sent into this world to die that we might be forgiven and that we might be saved. There's no greater way to honor God than to put my faith in his son. And there is no greater way to poke him in the eye or to dishonor him or disgrace him than to refuse his son that he sent into the world to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. And so there's life and death in the room related to this. You can't change the world. You can't change the wor- the, this nation. You can't change your mother or father, your neighbor, your son, your daughter. You can't change anyone. You can't make a decision for anyone. You can only make a decision for yourself related to Christ. Choose Christ today. Come forward for prayer tonight after the service. Let us pray with you so that you can leave today knowing that you will not have any part in all that we have just described here. And that, my friend, is God's desire for you as well. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, thank you that you win. Thank you that our daily prayer, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, will ultimately and surely be answered in human history. 
We thank you that one day all wickedness and evil and rebellion, Lord, and sin will be something that will be completely and forgettably in the past in terms of man's history. And Lord, with Isaiah, it breaks our heart to see how many people just going through life today, even within our own families and in our schools and workplaces, completely oblivious to all of this, Lord, or knowing it and ignoring it, not realizing what horror is coming, and necessarily so. And we thank you, Lord, for our Savior again tonight as we close. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for delivering us from the wrath that our sin deserves. Thank you so much, Lord, for the hope that is ours. Thank you for the sacrifice that he made that puts us on the right side of you in history and right and wrong. And we thank you, Lord, in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.